Ecclesiastes chapter 7. It's fairly long, uh, but we will read it in its entirety, so uh, please follow along if you're there. It's Ecclesiastes near the middle of the Bible, a little bit to the left, if you need help finding it. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, starting in verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. The patient spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not... Why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. All right, so a lot in there. I know maybe it sounds 
somewhat confusing of what's going on here. So let me pray. We need God's grace that he would give us understanding of his word. Lord God, we know that your word is true. We know that this is your very word. God, we know that it is clear and that it is perfect. Lord, we ask for your help, Spirit, that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds to understand your truth. Lord, I pray I would not get in the way of your truth. Lord, I pray that you would guide my tongue to speak your words that communicate your truth, that your Spirit would give us understanding, and God, that we would worship you in this time. For your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here in chapter 7, uh, you may have noticed that we see a little bit of a change in the way that Solomon writes, especially that first half of the chapter. The first half really is written in proverb form, and maybe you kind of felt the feeling of that. And overall, really, it takes more of a positive tone uh, than maybe what we've been used to. It, it, it's not littered with, oh, all is vanity, all is vanity, life is vanity, vanity is vanity, like we've seen uh, pretty much so far uh, in this book. But instead, Solomon, the wisest man on earth, provides wisdom here to his readers. And we're going to see that really in the next couple of chapters, I think, that he's going to continue to do so. A little bit of a shift, a change in the way in which he writes. There will still be vanity, don't worry, but a little bit of a shift of providing more wisdom and speaking into this. A little bit of a more positive tone. And in this chapter, he seeks to answer the question, I think, of how can we respond properly to the vanity of this world? In which he's been talking about for the last six chapters. How can we respond properly to, to the vexation, right? The, the, the frustration found in this world? And Solomon provides wisdom on how we might view life through God's wisdom instead of viewing life through man's wisdom or wisdom under the sun. And first, he provides five ways in which wisdom shows what is truly better. These five ways take what man's wisdom says is better. So this is what man's wisdom would say is better. But then Solomon kind of flips it on his head and he says, no, this is better instead. Let me show you God's wisdom instead of man's wisdom. So we're going to look at those five ways. And then after that, we're going to look at uh, how th that he shows that God's wisdom really ought to change our perspective in life. It ought to change how we view life and how we walk through life and our perspective in life. So that's kind of where we're going tonight, viewing life through the lens of God's wisdom, showing us what is truly better, and then showing us how that ought to change our perspective in life. So first we see wisdom shows us what is truly better. We see this in the first 14 verses. And these are the five, I'm categorizing them as better than statements. He does not necessarily say that in these um, 14 verses. Better than that phrase. But that's how I'm summarizing it. So first, we see that sadness is better than, than jubilance or, or happiness or laughter, you could say. I'm using the words jubilance. Sadness is better than jubilance. We see this in the first four verses. And maybe things sounded kind of odd to you. Solomon say, says things that really doesn't seem right. For instance, in verse 2 he says, It's better to go to the house of mourning 
than to go to the house of feasting. Or in verse 3, he says, sorrow is better than laughter. And don't just dismiss this as, oh, there's Solomon being depressing again. He just thinks sorrows is better than laughter. He's just, he's an emo kid. Is, is emo even a thing anymore? Is it, you guys know? Yeah, like, right? Because it's not Solomon being emo. What is it? Yeah. Okay, thank you. No, this, this, is, this is wisdom literature. And so we have to seek and understand what it is he's saying. How do these words, how are these wise words? And first, it's important to understand that Solomon's not suggesting that we don't be happy. He's not saying, no, you, you, you can't be happy. And he's not saying, don't partake in laughter, don't partake in parties. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, a godly life is a sad life. Sometimes that's people's perspective on Christianity and of God. That, well, if I'm going to be a Christian or if I'm going to live a godly life, then it's going to be a sad life. That's not what he's saying, and that's not true. Now, it is true that we are to deny ourselves and pick up our cross and follow him. Yes, there will be sacrifice, there will be hardship, there will be persecution. But the Christian life is actually a joyful life. In fact, it's the most joyful life ever is the Christian life. There's nothing more joyous than having a relationship with God, a loving relationship with God. And God's all about laughter. God's all about partying. You realize that? Christian, when when we go to be with him in heaven, Christian, when we go home, we're going to have a huge party. We're going to have a banquet, and there's going to be laughter. And joy and happiness, there's going to be partying, and it's going to be amazing. So it's not that God is against that. But we're talking about life here on earth. And while there's still value to laughter in this life, right? he's, he's not denying that, saying that all laughter is bad. His point is that sorrow is better. And the way that sorrow is better than laughter, or, or jubilance as I say, is that we're able to truly learn and grow through sorrows, more so than through laughter. And remember, there is a time for laughter. He said that actually in chapter 3, verse 4. Remember, we said there's a time for this and a time for that. He does say there's a time for laughter. And when it's time to laugh, then laugh and enjoy those moments. Yes. But what's even better than that, he says, is sorrow. In the bigger scheme of things, sorrow is where we truly learn and grow. Sorrow is where we are brought to our knees in dependence of God. It is in sorrow when we remember our absolute need of Him and we have no choice but to stop looking at ourselves and to start looking at Him. It is in sorrow, whereas Romans 8.29 says, we are conformed more into the image of Christ which ought to be our desire, where God refines us, where he draws out the dross. And often when we're going through hardship, we're going through sorrow, we view it as something we have to rid ourselves of immediately. Like, I have to do everything I can just, just to get rid of this because it's the worst thing possible. Well, might we need to hear Solomon's wisdom and know that sorrow is better. 
Now, the circumstance that created the sorrow is not better. That's not what he's saying. The circumstance that creates sorrow is not good. In fact, likely it's evil. Likely it's the result of sin or, or the fall. Death, divorce, broken relationships, sickness, abuse. These things are not good things. He's not saying these things are better. Solomon is not suggesting that, that these things themselves it, are, are what is good and what, are, and what is better. He's not saying you need to enjoy these sorrows and put on a fake smile and say, this is great. I love it. This is so wonderful. No, it's okay. In fact, it's right to be sorrowful in sorrowful moments. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to not be okay. But Solomon, in his wisdom, teaches us that sorrow is better than laughter. That in the end, God, in his great wisdom, uses sorrow and suffering and hardships for the good of his people. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Sorrow is better than laughter. Can you say amen to that? Can you see God's good and perfect hand even in the midst of sorrow? Can you say, yes, it is better than laughter? So first we see that sadness is better than jubilance. Secondly, we see rebuke is better than flattery. Verses 5 and 6. Again, it sounds opposite. We would think flattery is better than rebuke. But here Solomon says rebuke is better than flattery. Look at verses 5 and 6. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. And I think this can be hard for many because we often want to hear praise from others. And we don't want to hear rebuke. And the analogy he gives is like a bunch of thorns in a campfire. Imagine you have a campfire burning and, and you throw a bunch of thorns in it. And you, maybe you hear a lot of popping, right? The thorns causes you hear pop, 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 all this popping in the fire. And it sounds like a lot's going on, but really it doesn't produce you much good. These thorns, they pop around. It sounds great. It sounds like a lot of crackling in the fire. But really, there's nothing. It's not providing any heat. It's not providing any fire. They're just popping around. That's what flattery is like, is what he's saying. That you may hear a lot of these good words that tickle your ears, but it really doesn't do much good. What do you view as better? Rebuke or flattery? What do you seek after? I mean, just look at your own friendships. What do your close relationships consist of? Do you just seek flattering words from each other? Words that make you feel good about yourselves and each other? That no matter what, you always say what you know they want to hear. Maybe you're over at your friend's house, let's say. You guys are hanging out. You have sleepover or whatever. I don't know. You're hanging out at your friend's house. And at some point during the evening while you're there, you hear your friend talking extremely disrespectful to the parents. And there's, yeah, their mom says something. And they're, blah, 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 blah. And then you, you go back to the room to hang out. And your friend's like, oh, man, my mom's the worst, blah, 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 blah. 
and you say, yeah, man, I can't believe it. They blah, 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 blah. Yeah, they are the worst. Because they blah, 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 blah. Right? You're just telling them what they want to hear. Or do you have relationships that can give and that can receive rebuke? That you can say, look, I think the way you talked to your mom was very disrespectful. I don't think that was honoring to Christ. That you can see in their lives, and and instead of giving them words of flattery, I'm sorry, that, that you can see sin in their lives, and instead of giving them words of flattery, you give them words of rebuke. Are you able to receive rebuke? Are you able to give, but are you also able to receive rebuke? Do you have friendships that are safe to be able to give and to receive rebuke from one another? Solomon says this is better. He says rebuke is better than flattery. Now, of course, we, we, we cannot take these to the extreme. Right? We, we have to have a proper balance and understanding of each. You should not just be rebuking everyone, saying, it's better to rebuke, it's better to rebuke, I rebuke you, rebuke you, rebuke you, because that's better. No. In fact, Jesus says that, what, we need to take the log out of our own eye before we take the speck out of our brother's eye. So anytime you're thinking about rebuking someone, make sure you also examine yourself first. And just because rebuke is better than flattery, that doesn't mean that you should hold off words of encouragement to one another. Like, oh man, I really want to encourage this brother or this sister, but rebuke's better than flattery, so I better just find something to rebuke them for instead. No, we are to encourage and to build up the body of Christ. Words of encouragement are a great means of grace to one another. Just because rebuke is better than flattery doesn't mean that we can't encourage one another. We ought to do so. But in the end, Solomon says rebuke is better than flattery because it is the honest words that we need to help us grow. We all have sin and we all need some rebuking some degree or another. And we have to remember, we we do not convict the hearts of others, right? When you rebuke a friend, let's say, you, you do not convict them in their hearts. That is the Holy Spirit's job. But we must not be afraid to give rebuke where rebuke is needed. And we must not be resistant to receive rebuke when rebuke is given. Both require humility. Give and receive rebuke and humility and in grace. Next, we see the long road is better than the shortcut. Verses 7 through 10. The long road is better than the shortcut. Again, it seems weird, right? It seems wrong. It seems like, no, shortcut's better than the, than the long road. He's saying, no, the long road's better than the shortcut. I think so often we, we want the easy way out. We want the fastest, the quickest, the easy way to the finish line. And you might think, well, yeah, what's wrong with that? Like, obviously, if you can get to the finish line quicker or faster or easier, then you should do so. That's not wrong. Like you should, you should want to do that. Well, there could be a lot wrong with that, depending on the situation. For instance, it could take a long time to read and to research and to properly write a 10-page essay for school, let's say. Right? That could take a long time. And it'd be a lot easier and it'd be a lot quicker to find someone else's paper online and plagiarize it, Right? 
And I'm like, well, hey, yeah, I mean, if it's easier, if it's faster for me, then I should do it. No. Right? Like, that's an easy one that we should hopefully know not to do. Solomon's saying the long road is better than the shortcut. That it's better to put in the time and the work than to cut corners and to be dishonest. In fact, he mentions bribery in verse 7 in regards to this. It's better to, to put in that time and not cut corners and not be dishonest as we get to the finish line. Instead, we ought to trust the timing of God. And we ought to trust his perfect will for our lives. And what is his part of his perfect will for our lives is that we are obedient to his word. And sometimes obedience to his word means the long haul. It means the harder road. In fact, oftentimes the obedient path, the path that honors Christ, is not going to be the easiest path. Sometimes we want to shortcut our way through life, do things our way, because we think the easier and the quicker path is better. Look at what Solomon says in verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Patience is a godly trait that every Christian ought to practice and learn. So often we want to do things our way, in our timing. But we ought to learn to trust the Lord. Trust in His ways. Trust in His timing. And look at what Solomon says in verse 10. He says, Say not... Why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you have, or for it is not from wisdom that you ask this. What he's getting at is, is that it's an attitude of discontentment. Sometimes we long so much for different days that, that we look back at the good old days and we say, oh, why can't things just be how they used to be? Things were so much easier then. Things were so much better then. And we're discontent with the now. And we hold on to the past. Or we look ahead of the potential of what is to come. And so we're discontent with the now. And our hope lies on the potential of the future. Instead, he's saying, embrace and accept the journey that God has you on. And make the most of the day in which you are living today. Not these shortcuts. But today. Sometimes our eyes are, are everywhere else except today. And so we miss out on today. We miss out on what God is teaching us today. We miss out on what the blessings that God has for us today. Make the most of this day that God has given you. Tomorrow has enough worries for itself. But what about today? How are you living for the glory of God today? Learn from the past. Yes. Prepare for the future. Yes. But don't become obsessed with either one. Living in the past or the potential of the future. Make the most of your day today. Next, is wisdom is better than wealth. Wisdom is better than wealth. Verses 11 and 12. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. 
For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Wisdom is better than wealth. An inheritance of wealth seems great, right? Receiving all this money. But that inheritance will fade. That inheritance will be gone. It will run out. It could be stolen, etc. But true wisdom, true godly wisdom is eternal. It will not fade. It will not change. It will not run out. It cannot be stolen. It will last a lifetime as long as you apply it and don't abandon it. There's value. There's greater value in wisdom over wealth. In fact, Solomon even points out that wisdom acts as a protection. Many people believe protection security rests in their money, in their finances. And Solomon says protection rests in wisdom. And we looked at this in depth last week, or we had Red Harvest Party last week, in a couple weeks, in the last chapter. So I'm, we're not going to belabor the point. But wealth is not secure. It's not promised. In the end, it does not provide true security or protection. Do you remember we talked about this? Wisdom, Solomon says, is where true protection comes from. Why? Because there's blessing in living in accordance to God's purpose and God's design under God's wisdom. And in wisdom, when we choose to live in accordance to his will, then there are natural blessings to that. Living according to our created design. God's design for us. So pursue wisdom. Pursue godly wisdom over wealth. And then the last of these five is that God's plan is better than our plan. What? There you go. God's plan is better than our plan. Verses 13 and 14. God's plan is better than our plan. Verses 13 and 14. It says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. That is, the day of prosperity and the day of adversity. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Solomon challenges us to recognize the sovereignty of God in all seasons. In prosperity and in adversity. That no matter our circumstances, in good or in bad, God is sovereign. God is in control over all. Do you recognize God's sovereignty in both? Do you recognize God's sovereignty in your prosperity? When things go well, you realize that it's only because of God's sovereignty and His grace that you are prospering? Or do you credit it to your hard work? Well, I'm, I'm the best one on my team because I put in the most time, the most practice, and I'm the most dedicated to my craft. That's why I'm the best. I have all A's because you don't understand how much I study. I stay up all night studying. And I'm, a, I'm very studious. I'm a very diligent studier. -er. Er. Clearly not. I'm so good at this instrument because I practice eight hours a day and I do all these lessons. You don't understand. I'm so committed. This is why I'm so good. 
Do you acknowledge that it is only by God's sovereign, gracious hand that you have any of those blessings, that you have any of those prosperity, that, that in any way, in your great grades, in your great musicianship, or skills, or talents, or whatever it is, is because God has allowed you to do so and to be so. He's given you the talents and the gifts. He's given you the dedication. In fact, he's given you to the basketball player who practices so hard. He's given you the very breath to even step on the court and practice. He's given you all of it. Do you acknowledge that it is by his sovereign gracious hand that you prosper? Do you recognize also that recognize God's sovereignty in your adversity? When things are difficult. It's not that God has lost control or has turned his back on you. God is sovereign and he is in control even over your adversity. Just like he is over your prosperity. So do you, like Job, acknowledge and accept that God is sovereign over both? Remember Job? He acknowledges both. Job says, God gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do you realize that he both gives and takes away according to his perfect, sovereign will? Can you say no matter what, blessed be the name of the Lord? Sometimes that's hard in prosperity because we feel good about ourselves. Sometimes that's hard in the adversity because we question and we're upset. In both, can you say, blessed be the name of the Lord? Do we make our plans? And we should. But the problem is when we hold tightly to our plans and we do not trust that God's plan is better than our plan. And sometimes we worship our plan so much, and when things don't go according to our plan, we fall apart. And we get angry with God, and we begin to lose trust in the things in which we know about God, that he is good, that he is perfect, that he's in control. It can be hard and sometimes feel nearly impossible to trust God's plan is better than ours. At the end of the day, it, it doesn't matter how many sermons you've listened to or how many books you've read or how many people you've talked to. At the end of the day, it comes down to faith. Do you believe in the things of God, in his character, in his promises? Do you believe that God's plan is better than your plan? How you respond to, to the disruption of your plans often indicates if your faith is rooted in God or if your faith is rooted in your own plans. Will you trust that God's plan is better than your plans? So we see these five better than statements seemingly flipping things upside down on its head. That's what wisdom shows us, what is truly better. And in light of this, then we see that wisdom changes our perspective in life. As we view life through the lens of God's wisdom, it changes our perspective in life. Verses 15 through 29. We'll see a few points here. First, wisdom trusts God through unexpected realities. Verses 15 through 19. I'll explain what I mean by that. It can mean a lot of different things. 
We'll try to keep it to its context. Wisdom trusts God through unexpected realities. Verses 15 through 19. Verse 15. In my vain life, I have seen everything. Listen to what he says he's seen. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. That just seems wrong. And sometimes it's hard to trust God and trust his word when we see things like this. When we see things like the wicked prospering. When we see the righteous suffering. We see the righteous die in their righteousness. And we see the wicked continue to live in their wrongdoing. When we see innocent people die and we see sinful people live long lives. And it's in those times, sometimes we might think, is God actually just? Is he actually sovereign? Because this seems wrong. This seems to contradict his word. I don't know about this. What should we do in times like this? Verse 18. It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. That's what he says. It's in these times in which you think, in which you think you know what is right, in which you think you know what is wrong, what you think you know is fair and unfair, he says you must fear God and trust him. We must remember that God's wisdom is greater than our own understanding. And we must fear God and know that God is never wrong and God never contradicts himself. And when you see the injustices, you see the suffering in this world, or maybe when you look at your friends and you see their suffering, you see the hardships that your friends are going through, are you tempted to doubt God by seeing that in this life? You look at the injustices around this world, you look at those around you that you know, and you see, you say, man, they've been doing good things. Why, why, why is this happening to them? Are you tempted to doubt God? Wisdom says we need to trust God. We need to fear God. Wisdom says that God's word is always true. What about personally? When you're going through suffering of your own, does it seem that God is being unfair to you? Because you've been living a pretty good life for God. You've been going to church. You've been reading your Bible every day. You've been fighting your sin. You haven't been cussing. You, not too much. You haven't been disrespectful to your parents. All these good, you're doing all these good things. So God should be blessing you, right? Isn't that what the Bible says? You should be having a good life. So you begin to wonder and question, why would God allow these bad things to happen to a good person? Such as myself. Well, in case you thought you were a righteous person who was suffering, Solomon addresses you in verse 20. He says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. He says, that's not you. You cannot look at your own life or the life of someone else and say, that's not fair. That's not right. They were a good person. Why would God let a good person suffer like that? The only one who ever lived that was truly righteous is the one who suffered greater than all. There's only one person who ever walked on this earth 
that someone could ask why would God allow such a bad thing to happen to such a good person. You cannot ask that about yourself. No one is righteous. No, not one. But we can't ask that about Jesus. Jesus, the only one who was truly righteous and yet suffered undeservingly. Why would God allow that to happen? Why would he? We have an answer. We can go so many places in Scripture. How about John 3.16? Everyone knows it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's why. Jesus Christ, the righteous, suffered so that we can live. He is the only one that we can look to to say, this was truly a good man, the Son of God, God in the flesh, who suffered unjustly as he went to the cross and bore our sin and our wrath. Do you understand what Christ accomplished in his suffering? Even though he's righteous and lived a perfect righteous life, in everything, the life we needed to live, he lived. And yet he suffered and he died. So we can be credited his righteousness. Because you do not have righteousness on your own. I do not have righteousness on my own. But it's through Christ that we can be made right with God. Because of the substitutionary death on the cross. And because he rose again on the third day. And he's living. And he has victory over sin and death. And so the Bible says that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. We place our faith in him and confess our sins to God. You see, the gospel to human eyes it does not make any sense. It doesn't seem right. Why would God die for sinners like us? It just doesn't seem right. And sometimes the realities of this life, they do not seem right. That does not seem right. But wisdom trusts God, even through the unexpected realities of life. Next, we see, as we look how wisdom changes our perspective in life, we see that wisdom reveals sin. Verses 20 through 22. Wisdom reveals sin. I already read 20. I'll read it again. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Verse 22. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. As you grow in wisdom... You ought to grow in the understanding of your own sin. You understand? Those two things go together. As you grow in wisdom, you grow in your understanding of your own sin. Wisdom reveals sin. It is the prideful and the foolish person who thinks they have no sin. It's the foolish person who says, I don't really struggle with sin. It's the foolish person who sees sin in everyone else but can't see it in themselves. As if they've matured out of sin. Self-righteousness can also cause you to be on the other side of the spectrum. 
to be overwhelmed by your sin. Where you're so overwhelmed by your sin that you say, God could never forgive me of my sin. That seems humble. But reality, it's self-righteousness. It's a self-righteous attitude that says, my sin's too great for God. In wisdom, see the sin that you have. Repent of it and find rest in the forgiveness of Christ. We all have sin in us. In wisdom, have you identified the sin in your life? Every single person in here, me included, and all the adults in here, all the TYG students, and all the little kids too. We, there's little kids in here. But you too. We all have sin in us. We all do. Have you identified that sin? Or do you not really struggle with sin that much, you would say? Have you repented of your sin? Have you brought it before the Lord? Have you confessed it to Him? Or do you hide it? Do you deny it? And do you continue in it? Have you found rest in the forgiveness of Christ? That says, thank you God, thank you Christ for paying for my sins and God for forgiving me of all of my sins. Or do you drown yourself in guilt? not resting in the grace and the forgiveness of God. If you are a Christian, know that Christ has forgiven all of your sins and rest in His complete, full forgiveness of your sins. And if you are not a Christian, know that He can forgive you of all of your sins. Come to Christ in faith and repentance and receive the full forgiveness of sins and the free gift of eternal life. Wisdom reveals that we have sin. But wisdom also reveals the forgiveness of sin that we have through Jesus Christ. Lastly, we see that wisdom is limited. Verses 23 through 29. Wisdom is limited. While wisdom is great, and while we see many benefits, and we see advantages to wisdom, wisdom has its limitations. Wisdom is not the solution to all our problems. Wisdom does not provide us with salvation. Wisdom is not to be worshipped or trusted above all things. Wisdom does not provide for our every need. And in our wisdom, we may think we have a better and more clear way on how to live our lives. And indeed, a lot of ways we do. And yet, there's still so much mystery, is there not? In the sense that we cannot fully understand all the ways of God. There's mystery in God. We cannot fully grasp what I mean of the depths of His knowledge. What I mean is that our minds are finite. What I mean is that our wisdom is limited. And we must not become frustrated when we don't understand all of the ways of God. Sometimes we want to understand and bring Him down to our level. We're not meant to know everything. 
Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to the Lord. And so let the secret things, let the mysteries of God remain with God. And do not try to be God yourself. We can gain wisdom in which God reveals to us, in which he reveals many things to us. But when we come to a place where we cannot grasp the depths of his knowledge, we must be okay with that. And we must trust him. We do not place our hope in our wisdom and in what we know. We place our hope only in Christ. So let our hope be in him. Throughout this book, we have seen so much vanity in this world, right? I mean, every chapter, vanity, vanity, vanity. And we've seen so much frustration in the things of this world. Solomon is constantly frustrated with it. But here Solomon provides us with some wisdom. Wisdom that's not man's wisdom, but godly wisdom. And really what it comes down to, if we could sum it up, is that God is the one who is in control. And he is the one who possesses true wisdom that exceeds any wisdom that we may have. And godly wisdom is good. And we should pursue it. And we should apply it. We should be students of his word. We should seek out godly wisdom and not worldly wisdom. And we should apply the wise truths of scriptures to our lives. Yes. But there is something, or or rather there is someone, greater than wisdom. And that is God. Wisdom is good. But we cannot elevate wisdom higher than God. We may possess some wisdom... But remember, our wisdom is limited. And at the end of the day, we need to submit and trust God and His wisdom, which is greater than our wisdom. Even at times in which we may not understand, we need to trust Him. We must trust in God and remember His wisdom is greater than ours. And I believe one of the greatest demonstrations of God's ultimate wisdom It's his plan of salvation for his people. Isn't that an incredible demonstration of his wisdom? It's a plan that goes beyond human wisdom. Because if man were to come up with a plan of salvation, we would not come up with it in this way. We would not come up with it in the gospel. How how do I know that? Because man has tried to come up with other ways for the salvation. And it's not the gospel. We see so many times... Throughout history, false gospel, gospels of works and not gospel of grace, which is what his gospel is. You look at every other religion out there, every other false religion. There's so many, so many false religions out there. And none of them match the message of the gospel and the redemptive plan of salvation that God has orchestrated since before time began, which is by faith in Christ. By grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. His plan of salvation is that he sent his son, perfect and blameless, God in the flesh, to die in our place that we might be saved. And he offers us the free gift of salvation through the finished work of Christ. Salvation is found by grace alone, through faith alone, on the merits of Christ alone. That's it. That is his plan. 
and it is perfect and is beautiful and is a magnificent plan of salvation. That is true wisdom that man could not come up with, but has come from God. In God is true wisdom. And as we see the vanities of life, and we wonder how it is that we are to navigate through this, look to God and His wisdom. And view life through the lens of God's wisdom. And ask that He would guide you to live a life that honors Christ and worships Him. In all things, at all times, in all circumstances. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would give us your wisdom, your understanding of your word. God, that we would live life through the lens of your wisdom. God, that we would not seek man's wisdom, but only yours. Lord, I pray that you would teach us, that you would grow us, that you would convict us, that you would change us. Lord, that we would live for you. We thank you, God, for your plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, for your love and your grace and your mercy. We thank you, God, that you are perfect in every way. Thank you, God, that you are a God who is worthy of our worship and praise. That you are a God who is on his throne. Lord, I pray that you would teach us your truths. And God, that we would live by your truths to your glory alone. Help us in this time, God, as we discuss these things. Lord, that you would continue to teach us on how we can apply this to our lives for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.